I'm Casey Kasem. At number one was this smash. so much good feedback about that i said hey ron would you mind would you like to do something like that for a bunch of episodes and he said absolutely and not two hours later he had cut together the the one you just heard for the beginning of signals here so thank you very much ron and we look forward to hearing uh the rush hits compared to the more mainstream stuff thank you very much today we're talking about signals a very very um I was going to say a cool album and I wish I were well read enough to have a, um, you know, more vivid vocabulary. Uh, there's gotta be a better word for how awesome signals is. And today I'm bringing back a guest that's been on Rushcast before from our dog years defense episode. Please welcome Jim Losby. How's it going? Hey, Jim? Jay, how's it going? Uh, good, good. I'm good too. And I'm glad to have you back. Uh, is this, is this your favorite album? Is this an album that speaks to you more so than others? Um, I think it, it, it's certainly a favorite. It's, um, you know, probably for some of the fan base, certainly a controversial album in a way. Uh, and it came out when I was, you know, early on in high school. So it's really kind of, you get that real emotional connection. And a lot of the themes of the album kind of resonate with, you know, when you're like 15. Sure. I mean, I I think the subdivisions theme is, is sort of beat to death in a way. Like we all know about it. It's it's pretty obvious to begin with with the song, and then you get the documentary that really drove it home. Where it's uh, the not to not label you as a misfit, but it's it's mm. subdivisions itself has this sort of mis, misfit vibe, um, and we all sort of know that because it's talked about so often. What what else is there in on the album? Is there something along those lines thematically? that resonated with you? Uh, yeah, I mean, Subdivisions and Analog Kid are kind of, you know, part one and part two of, you know, uh, a work, you could say. And um, you, then you've got some variety with, uh, you know, Countdown closing out the album. Um, I don't think too many bands would, you know, do a song about a spatial launch. <laughs> yeah. 
Now and, that was um, my uh, my dad will know this. This was about or countdown was about uh, Columbia. Columbia first. It was Columbia. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um. Is that and then Columbia is the one that blew up later on reentry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, on reentry. Yeah. I, I, well, when I was listening to the album this week, I thought, uh, I wonder. I, I imagine that day was pretty emotional for the guys in Rush as well because they were there for its first flight and all that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm surprised we never heard. Maybe there is like an interview or something where that was mentioned. I don't know. Um, Jim, there were our. I have a couple of listeners. I think, I think it's um, our perpetual hitchhiker. Um, what's his name? Who's our hitchhiker guy? He's always sending in the clips. No, not Bill Middletown Meyer. I can't. Oh, Jason, Jason Vaughn. I can't. Almost forgot Jason. Uh, he. I think it's Jason who says uh, he thinks Analog Kid should have been first on the record and Subdivision second. And while I totally understand why he thinks that, and I could see how Analog Kid might, you know, it definitely crashes in a bit harder than Subdivisions. I do like the order on on uh, Signals, at least this the first two tracks. I think Subdivisions kind of creeps up on you in a sort of show don't tell sort of way. And um, Analog Kid, while it it's heavy right from the get go, doesn't feel like an opener it feels like a middle song to me like a middle of the rotation sort of thing yeah i think subdivision starts out and it sort of sets a mood where it's it's you know there's a little i mean it's not depressing but it's a sort of starts laying out a story and i think you know some people i think could argue that you know analog kid is just sort of a like chapter two and in whatever that story is and maybe you know digital man is something later on in that story i don't know but um, yeah, it, I mean, it, it starts sort of ominously with that, you know, the, the bass part, I think that's an F sharp or something um, on, on the keyboards. And it's kind of like, you're like, okay, where is it going? It, it's not like you're not coming out of the gate like, you know, a kid would, would have come out of the gate like Spirit of Radio. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but don't you think Spirit of Radio had um, an opener sort of feel and vibe like, like aside from the fact that it was heavy right from right out of the gate, it felt like an opener. Like the analog kid, just just to me, I'm not even sure. It maybe it's a little too deep. It's it's a deeper song than the spirit of radio, which is it is what right, it is. And you could argue that like uh, spirit opens up with a, that guitar. But that's almost like a fanfare or something. You're like, hey, everybody, you know, come on, let's, yeah, let's get some attention. That's here. a good uh, point. That's a good. I like fanfare. That's a good way to describe that. Um, I was going to, you reminded me of something. Oh, we talked in the last couple albums about how the band was getting into their sort of reputation for, in this era, they had songs that ended, they had live endings on the studio record, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So we look at Limelight uh, and songs like that that had that end, have a nice ending. Um, we're getting even more so into the bulk of that, where we take the first three tracks on this record and listen to the mm-hmm. endings of these songs. They're the most hard-rocking, driving, live endings you could have. These are songs that don't need to be uh, rearranged live because the endings are already so good. Subdivisions, Analog Kid, and Chemistry especially have um, really high-octane endings that I I like, I, I miss. Um, you know, I have this, like, ongoing f- battle with fade-outs 
mm-hmm. and trying well, to especially when the fade, when the fadeout starts getting good. <laughs> but all oh, of a sudden yeah, yeah, it's yeah. solo or everybody starts to jam or something. And you're like, oh no, come on! And you you know you reach over and you turn that volume up as, as the levels are going down. <laughs> you're like, I know there's something. There's like thirty seconds more in the studio, isn't there? <laughs> right. I mean, Digital Man is a, a good example of that because while I'll accept that, yeah, maybe it's a song that could fade out and that you could mm-hmm. sell as a fade out. Getty starts like kind of losing his mind as a vocalist mm-hmm. at that point. Plays fast forward just as long as he can, but he, well, you know, he starts like mumbling. Um, mm-hmm. I want to hear that stuff. Okay. Uh, yep. Where like subdivisions ends more. It's almost like a classical music ending, you know. It's like da da da, you know, and then everybody takes like a bow or something. yeah, like a like a Dvorak symphony or something. Right. Or right. Yeah. Big, you know, triumphant ending. Right. It's more coincidental than anything else, but yeah, it's just kind of like or analog kids say da 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 da, you know. Yeah. And it just sort of fades out. You're like, okay, it's it's the the song is over. <laughs> the door is closed. People kind of label this album as the album that where they really dove into other um th- not themes but styles so we get like mm-hmm. the reggae and these th- things of that nature um there's a the, couple of people eat- reggae that ska feel there yeah um, like what, what's the other one they're always saying um and the reason i don't know their labels is because i don't necessarily think like when i hear that like so digital man is the reggae feel i think no new world man's reggae Right, right. New Orleans reggae and digital man has got that. You got that Scott kind of. I never feel. quite like in my all my years of listening to this music. I never um, listened to those tracks and thought, "Oh, that's reggae." Like it was always just rush to me. Do you know oh, yeah, what I mean? Yeah. I know that's sort of cheesy, but like it. I never heard it as anything other than rock and rush and what I knew. Mm-hmm. I think that speaks to how well they implemented that. Yeah, and I mean, they've always been influenced by what they're listening to. And um, a couple of interviews I was reading, uh, transcripts from around the time when they were doing press for the album, they were talking about, well, you know, we listen to the police, and we listen to Talking Heads, and we listen to, you know, this and that. You know, there's, as always, they're sort of reacting what they're listening to. Right. So they absorb some of that stuff, and they try some of that stuff out, and some stuff, of, you know, probably becomes like their own style in, in a way it gets absorbed and changed and sometimes we're it's like hey we're just playing kind of a reggae thing right here you know sure especially same thing with um you know spirit has that little reggae reggae bit yeah and what's funny i had another uh example of listeners emailing me after moving the moving pictures uh episode and they said you know while your people argue signals is the beginning of that uh vital signs could maybe be pointed to as the beginning of those sort of new styles being implemented um another That's emailer true, yeah. pointed out that terry brown was super not into digital man uh mm-hmm. and my dad just gave me the a wiki page here and it says um uh digital man was put together at the studio the ska style bridge was created along with the sequencer pattern with the guitar and bass producer terry terry brown was not impressed and initially refused to record it yeah um, he also, I was I was reading the art of uh, Rush book too, and he was not necessarily a giant fan of the album cover either. <laughs> it was kind of like you're putting a dog on the cover in a fire hydrant, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what was I just gonna say? We were talking about Terry. Brown. Oh, and mm-hmm. after I read that email, I thought about Terry Brown hating Digital Man. I thought, how? How? Like, 
obviously that's they they said to him like we're gonna do this thing it's a different style it's a ska thing that must have been a turnoff but again for me you play that song for me i don't go oh this is a different style i just hear or at least as a young kid i just heard music and it it just sounded good to me uh i think digital man might be the strongest on the record arguably oh yeah it's a it's a good track and it's i it's one of those tracks that i've used to you know if you want to try out like a a new stereo or some headphones or, you know, car stereo or something, you're like, just because it starts with that really clear drum drum part and there's a lot of active bass going on, that's one of those things, you know, you, you turn that up and see how that sounds. Yeah, um, for me personally, hearing it on the Snakes tour was the big moment where I went, oh, like, this this thing rocks. I gotta, I gotta go revisit this and sort of redigest it a bit um, mm-hmm. because I hadn't quite swallowed all of the material um, as much of it as I wanted to yet when I saw that Snakes tour. But um, on YouTube, I know there's, I think I've seen a um, isolated just drum and bass track version of it. Oh, on YouTube you saw that? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I know that, I think a couple weeks ago, yeah. Music in the Abstract does that stuff a lot. Oh, it's, it's so interesting to hear those isolated tracks. Um, oh, yeah. They do, re- they do recovered stuff. fade-outs too, which are really cool. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, digital, I think, I just wanted to, you know, I want to sit on Digital Man for just a second, because I think it's uh, a really interesting song in their catalog, obviously because of the style, but also let's sort of analyze what they did when they played it, when they pulled it out live, finally, you know, since, I think, since the Signals tour that hadn't been played or something, Um, that might not be exactly right, but something like that. Uh, they changed the form around. We've talked about this, like with Natural Science and the Camera Eye up until this album. Uh, They turn it into almost like the chorus becomes this big peak moment, which we don't normally get in these sort of, you know, these songs that Rush is writing up until now. The chorus happens once, and it's the big moment. That's a very different thing. So you'll notice, like, they go to the guitar solo. They do sort of this teaser uh thing where you think oh here comes the chorus if you know the song really well but nope we're gonna go right into the guitar solo and then we'll get the chorus later on i thought that was a really nice change that they made to that track did you notice that or am i crazy um i think you've got more of a training and and structure than i i certainly do but yeah it i mean it you know it is just shaped differently than i think a normal song would be sure yeah um Let's uh, let's talk about chemistry. Okay. I think it's becoming more commonly known that chemistry was a song that was written by uh, the lyrics were written by uh, all three guys, right? And that I, yeah, I also that... I also think chemistry was what Getty said was like the first thing he wrote all by himself on synthesizers in his basement or something. Um, mm. You know that he brought to the band and said, "Here, I wrote this on synthesizers." Which was neat. Okay. A lot, a lot of it, um, I believe, from what I recall reading, was uh, they had since they've pretty much always taped their soundcheck stuff. They realized one one day they had played the various parts of the song in soundcheck, like Neil Neil's drum part in one thing that they were playing, and just sort of a jam became the drum part for part. And then Alex played something that ended up being another part. So basically, from a day's soundcheck jam, they were able to assemble like the bare bones of the song. Right, right, right. And, and you got to imagine that's a more organic way to write a song because you're yeah. essentially, the three of you are, are together. 
on mm-hmm. jamming in a way. It's not Alex and Getty writing something on, uh, you know, in Toronto and then emailing it to Neil in California. Not that that doesn't work, but it, it's a different way to write for sure. Sure, sure, yeah. One thing, or especially a lot of times since you know they would go and they would you know, rent a lifeless studio or somewhere and they'd go out there for a couple weeks and Neil would be at one end of the building. He'd be writing lyrics and fine tuning, like going through all his notes that he had taken the last year or two. And Alex and Gator would be sitting around like jamming and trying to put things together and and whatnot. And then after, you know, they start passing things back and forth and, you know, building songs that way. Something that chemistry reminds me of is this um, sort of misconstrued illusion that... (laughs) Power Windows and Hold Your Fire were the most synth-heavy albums that mm-hmm. Rush ever had. And while maybe maybe it's true they had the most synths, I think the roles were different. So if we're mm-hmm. going to talk about Power Windows and Hold Your Fire as that was like, you know, when the frustration came to a head with Alex being buried, I don't mm-hmm. think that's how it went down or how it is. I think mm-hmm. these albums represent more of a of a distance between the guitar role and the synth role like chemistry is layered it is dripping in synthesizers at times oh yeah uh there are a lot of moments on this album where you hear examples like where is the guitar right now and even if you can locate it it's doing a very small role in the music in the grand scheme of things um Mm -hmm. not to not to go too far into the future with the album series but on power windows and hold your fire it's hard to find a moment where you don't know where the guitar is. I think the guitar right. is very prominent on those records and much more important on those records than the synth parts. Um, whereas, you know, you could take... Like, is the guitar really the most important part uh, of Subdivisions? Is it? Like, yeah, it's important, but the synth mm-hmm. is doing most of the work on that track, unfortunately. That, right. That's just and how it is, and we all love that track, but... Right. Um, it's... it's- more guitar uh, in a, one of the other flight reds. Um, Neil, I think, comments that on certain tracks here, the guitar, you know, the rhythm section is Neil and Alex. And, you know, melody and, and backup is, is Getty on keys, keys and bass. Which track is this? Um, I, Neil mentions it in, a, in an old interview on several tracks on the album. Chemistry might be one of them, where it seems like Alex and Neil are the whole rhythm section driving things because right. Getty's doing melody and, like, you know, support of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I mean, Analog Kid is an example where you go, well, the guitar drives Analog Kid pretty good, and yeah, it's one of the most epic riffs <laughs> ever. Oh, sure, yeah, um, yeah. And then we'll take the guitar solo out of it. We all know the guitar solo is king in that song. This is nuts. But yeah. think of the chorus. Is the guitar, like, while the guitar's there, is that really what's driving the music at that point? Like, the synthesizer is the event in the chorus of that song. It's moments mm-hmm. like that that I don't think exist on Power Windows, really, and and mm-hmm. Hold Your Fire. Um, so just what I'm trying to say is, for me, the peak of the synthesizer, uh, sort of the, the genocide of the synthesizer, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or by the synthesizer, was Signals. And even, like, times on moving pictures, you know, the camera eye-ish. Mm-hmm. Um that, that, I don't know. Does that make sense, or am I am I sounding I, no, I, nuts? I mean, I distinctly recall that you know they were coming. You know, Furman Waves was big. Moving Pictures was big. Uh, Exit Stage Left kept you know kept them in the public eye. And when Singles came out, I think the sort of hardcore first album slash twenty one twelve you know fans 
were like, oh, keyboards, oh, because New Wave was becoming more popular, and you were getting, you know, weird bands from England, that they were all just playing keyboards, and there was synth pop and stuff like that. And then when they hear Subdivision starting with just keyboard stuff, and Getty Stingler just with his bass hanging there, and Alex has a flock of seagulls haircut in the video, and he's just sort of, you know, just sort of, you know, playing sort of rhythm, and I'm sure some people were just like, ah! Yeah. Uh, Jim, I want to bring my dad in on mic here, because he's our... Number one, he's here. I'm I'm at his place this week, um, mm. but he's uh, the the biggest synthesizer I know. <laughs> you uh. you have the most experience playing synthesizers. Uh, so what what did you want to say? Well, plus I fixed your car today, so you have to let me talk. Yeah, that's true. I do owe him a few hundred dollars. <laughs> I'm your obtrusive companion that's gonna intrude. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, you guys were talking about the synthesizer era and that kind of thing, and and I think. Uh, these guys putting subdivisions as the first track in this album was like, here you go, foul in your face, sub mm-hmm. subdivisions with the sequ- you know, the synthesizers and and oh, there's like some double meaning there as well, like well, you know, I think they're basically them putting it as the first track really was saying to the world, we have synthesizers and we know how to use them, and mm-hmm. then they just you know and he almost like here's out. how you do it well. Right, so right. you may, maybe you think they have? Do you guys think they had a ton of confidence in that track before they even knew it was going to oh, be yeah. popular? They were like, "Oh, this is our this is our single. This plus, is the one." Plus uh-huh. the fact that yeah. you know, again, this song came out. You know, MTV started in August of 1981. This this song was within the first year of that. You know, everything was MTV back then. If you if you had oh, yeah. a song that went anywhere, it was on MTV. That's how people actually knew music back then. But these guys, you know, the, the thing that impressed me and then one of the things that solidified me loving Getty Lee was that he played bass and keyboards, and so do I. But um, I love the part where he jumps off the keyboards and he's nothing but bass. And to me, mm-hmm. again, there's, you know, that's true rush right there, being able to do all of it and do it all well, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, again, with this, the synthesizer talk, you know, when we talk about where was the peak, Subdivisions has those moments where he gets off the synths and he shreds the bass for a bit. Um, does Red Sector A have a moment like that? Mm, no. no, it doesn't. Uh, there yeah. are a few, I think a few tracks on Grace Under Pressure where you look at it and go, uh, there's really not much happening here bass-wise. Um, so maybe that's the peak. Uh, this is just my argument is, you know, find me one Power Windows track, either of you, if you can, that doesn't feature awesome bass playing. Yeah. you know they're all there so um jim what was the first track when you first heard this album how old were you what was this what was the scenario you were in and what was the one track on this album that was number one for you um you know i'm gonna the first thing i remember hearing i believe was subdivisions on the radio and seeing a video and you know buying the album the day it came out uh as one did at the time and um and especially you know, you're, you're, you're a sophomore in high school and everything is so angsty and subdivisions is kind of about who you are. You know, you're, you're a guy, you're, you live in the suburbs, everything's kind of looks mass produced because there's so much conformity and everybody, you got to be the same or you got to have to do the popular, to be the popular person, you have to have, you know, this type of shirt or these type of shoes mm-hmm. or have to listen to this sort of music. And this is kind of basically saying, yeah, you know, we under, we understand that's how it is. That's how it seems now. <laughs> <laughs> and we know, and we know you want to get away, and you want to go on to what's next. You might have lived in this town since you were born. You've been seeing these people for fifteen years, and you know, 
you you've read stuff and you've seen stuff on TV, you listen to other music, and you know there's other stuff out there, and it's that you're just you know ready to get out of town. And that and um, Analog Kid builds on that. Where um, you're right, it is sort line, of thematic. He's the, co- right. he's the country kid trying to get out of town. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and, and that's you know it's the too many hands in my time, too many feelings, mm-hmm. uh, too many things in my mind. When I leave, I don't know what I'm hoping to find. When I leave, I don't know what I'm leaving behind. It's just like I gotta get out. I gotta maybe not so much I gotta get out of here and get away from these people. It's like I got I want to go and see what's next. Yeah, you, you know, know what that reminds moving. me of is uh, that's got a little bit of an Owen Hardy flavor to it, which who is mm-hmm. the, uh, oh, yeah. the yeah. our main character in the Clockwork Angels novel who says I just got to get out of here. You know, he longs for the uh, the steam. Uh, this what are they called um, in the novel? Steam ships, steamboats, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you want to go to the big city. You want to see the the famous stuff. You want to see what's what's going on out there. Yeah, do whatever you want, man. Right. And some people you know, in What's in that? high school, you know, you might have known somebody who, you know, it gets very cliquish, uh, you get restless, you know, you want to go to the city and see the cool stuff, but it's so far away and you don't drive or something. And, you know, some people are certainly the products of their upbringing where they know that, oh, I've been, you know, raised that I'm going to go to this school and then I'm going to go to law school or I'm going to be an accountant or, you know, a chemist or, or, or whatever. But it's like you're just kind of along for the ride. Everything has been predecided and your opinions have all been provided already you know mm-hmm. nice i like the that sounds like a lyric yeah <laughs> the quotes thrown in there so not paraphrasing here yeah. like if, if you're sleeping for just a second you miss it <laughs> right it, well and, and also in retrospect it the the song sort of speaks of that's the way it seems and it's kind of that way but when you know looking back yeah it's also kind of not that way you know you had some control over what you're doing and mm-hmm. you know you didn't have all these rules if you wanted to but you know you realize the frustration, you know, in the being the being in the small pond for you know, fifteen years, sixteen years, seventeen years. Yeah, and I feel that, especially with the small town I'm from and that I'm in right now, and now I live in New York City. Like I, I I've seen both ends of it. Um, not that there's anything wrong with either of those places, right. but they're definitely different. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, and after I went away to college and came back, and then moved to Chicago, and some people probably thought, "Whoa, Chicago! Hey." <laughs> Slow down, Mr. Fancy Man. You know? <laughs> uh, I I may have asked you on the last episode, but I hope you're not a White Sox fan. No. All right. Come straight. I'm all about that. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> hey, Jim, I want to ask you a question. Uh, sure. Maybe you remember this, because I have this vague re- recollection of a Subdivisions video playing on MTV. Yep. And That's I where can- I would have seen it. And I cannot find this video anywhere. You know, YouTube's got all kinds of crap. All mm-hmm. any video you want to think of, right? Well, the mm-hmm. subdivisions video that pops up is not the one I remember seeing. And what I remember is seeing the guys playing their instruments, Getty at the keyboard with his bass in his hands, and mm-hmm. I distinctly remember him jumping back and, and shredding on the bass when that part comes in. And, and it's an all-white background. Getty's got his mm-hmm. long long hair. And, and am I thinking of maybe a different video, or does that ring a bell with you at all or maybe some other listener kind of remembers what i've described but i don't know i'm i'm only aware of the the one um the the the, the studio one um where you know it cuts between you know the kid in high school and stuff and then and then them playing uh and, and cutting back and forth right and then they kind of show cityscapes and stuff too 
like uh, the the suburbs, you know. Yeah, and, and mm-hmm. that yeah, that's in the one he's describing, right? Right, right. Um, yeah. yeah, this other one that I remember seeing. Was... Well, I think what you need to do is you need to watch, and there's a wealth of them. Um, the videos from Grace Under Pressure. Like, do you specifically remember what base it was? Because the Grace videos, I think, will will um, feature only the Steinberger. I, it wasn't yep. a Steinberger, I know the that. Stein, if you don't know, the Steinberger is the base Getty played for one tour that had virtually no body and no headstock. It was just the string length. Um, so it's easy to pick out. But, but Grace Under Pressure does have a few videos where there's like a white background and he's at the keyboards. I think it's... Um, Distant Early Warning has something similar. Yeah, we got to do some homework and see if maybe you yep. are getting confused with something else. But Yeah, there's a Body Electric video, too. Oh, yeah, maybe. Th- yeah, so there's Body Electric, there's The Enemy Within. Um, you got to remember, this played on MTV, and I don't really recall right. all those. Oh, that's true. So you definitely saw it on MTV. Oh, absolutely. So it was a big and one. And I saw it multiple times. It's not like I only saw it yep. once. Okay. So, you know. Interesting. I mean,. I'd be shocked if somebody listening, if nobody listening has any idea what you're talking about, because most of the time when I have a question, somebody gets it answered. Um, it would be cool to find that video. What? Maybe it was like a promo thing before the actual video was done. They're like, this song is huge. We need it on MTV right now. You know, it kind of looks like it was something they might have thrown the, Let's together. just, you know, like, let play along to the track. We'll right. throw it on MTV. Right. And um, That's a good point. We'll get, when this other thing's being done, edited, that'll be the one we play. Mm. But I'm still surprised what, that what, we can't find it anywhere. That's right. You know, one thing that surprised me about the, the videos from Signals, there's a single, excuse me, there's a video for Subdivisions, and there's a video for Countdown, which is interesting. There, wait, 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 wait. The, the band made a video for Countdown? No, there's an actual video for Countdown. With, it's got NASA footage, and then it's got them playing on... I don't know if it's the exact same set as the subdivisions one. Their, their uh, outfits have changed. Giddy's wearing this horrible, like, sleeveless, like, sweatshirt top that looks like it has jelly beans on it. <laughs> um, That's, can you just say that description one more time? <laughs> uh, yeah, Giddy looks like he's wearing, like, a dark gray sleeveless sweatshirt, and it's got, looks like little dots or jelly beans on it. And uh, Alex is wearing nice, a nice shirt and tie. It's not the like the tuxedo shirt in the subdivisions video with the red bow tie. Um, I think Neil's got a baseball cap on um, at one point. Well, uh, but, yeah, but, the reason but, I asked was that there's um, a guy on YouTube that does fantastic fan videos. Um, okay. Countdown is one of them. There's one mm-hmm. for Test for Echo. Like, I'll, I'll have to oh. find his name and, and give the guy some some love. But cool. anyway, continue. I was always surprised that it was not just like a straight up New World Man video. I mean, that was a single. They, you know, they knocked that song out famously in in two days, and you know, what they couldn't get us in a like a soundstage for half a day and you know, <laughs> climb along to it a couple times. Yeah, and you know, like out of all the tunes on this record, you know, Subdivisions is the big one and the big mainstream one, but New World Man oh. got some radio play, right? Oh, a lot. Yep, yep. That got a yeah, lot that. of play. Yeah. Um, Jim, my dad just brought up the on his like iPad. He brought up the, uh, he found it pretty easily. He found the countdown video, and I see. Yeah. I'm looking at the jelly beans, and <laughs> <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. He's got sleeves. They're just super short. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, what a weird dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm you know I'm always shocked at the amount of videos that Grace had. Well, I guess I'm not shocked. It was the height of that fad, but. Um, you're right. Like, why didn't the big, the big radio guy 
aside from subdivisions, have a video. In New World Man, uh, according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong, uh, it remains <laughs> Russia's only America's top 40 hit, peaked at number 21 for three weeks. That's October, right. November of 82. Yeah, which is so funny because, like, they have all these other super prestigious statistics. Like, uh, what's what's the stat where they're third behind the Beatles and the Rolling Stones? Uh, like, all-time mm. records or, or gold? Number, yeah, records, albums sold for Platinum years, records yeah. or something like that. Do you know what yeah. it is exactly, Jim? Uh, I don't recall. I believe, I you know, they're certainly up there for gold records. Um, maybe it's, you know, most records sold by a group. I, I don't recall. Yeah, I, I'm reading that part on wiki right now it became new world man became a surprise hit single for the band peaking at number 21 yeah um for a song that was the last song written and written you know it's like oh we got to balance out the size of the album so we need a song that's you know the liner notes in uh, the tour book talk about you know okay there's project it's project three minutes 57 seconds we need to write a song uh that's going to be less than four minutes just so that the album will be you know <laughs> well balanced. You say that like, can you three goons handle that? <laughs> Under right. four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I like because yeah, hand- otherwise they point out that uh, there's only like a handful of you know close to the heart is like under three. Uh, and a couple of other t- songs are just under four minutes. So right, they you, knew they could, they've done it before. But you can count them on one hand. <laughs> like in their entire career, you can count them on one hand that were that short. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. If, and we're not counting brought up to believe two. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rune's Bane does not count. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe Madrigal is one of those songs that's under four Oh, totally. I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I keep forgetting stuff I want to say. I bet New World Man having had it, because it was written so quickly, maybe that had to do with the video uh, not Could existing. It, it, it might have written it, and it's like, as an episode, they pro- maybe they already knew that they had to shoot two videos. So Yeah. And, and they're certainly one of those bands where, you know, I suppose they looked at making, well, you know, we should probably make a video. The label's going to pay for it. Let's just do it and get it out of the way. Let's try to find something, a different way to do something, and let's just, you know, knock that off. And right. We're all about getting on the road and playing live. <laughs> um, I, th- I mean, like, people sometimes talk about it like it's a throwaway song. Some people hate New World Man, and I think it's I think it's fantastic. As a, as a teenager listening to this album, it was so poppy and... Mm-hmm. And easy to listen to. Like a lot of Rush songs are not easy to listen to. I I don't. Th- I wouldn't give Digital Man, for example, to you know one of my friends who only listens to Top Forty stuff, because Top Forty stuff's easy to listen to. There's not. It doesn't. You don't need to be a smart person or a smart music listener right. to listen to Top Forty stuff. Um, I wouldn't. I'll, I wouldn't give Subdivision certainly. Hey, here, check out this song. It's in F sharp and it's in seven. You'll love it. Um, yeah. that's not going to fly new world man. I think you could, it's easy to listen to. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I, I stand by how I just described what it means to, <laughs> for a song to be easy to listen to, because that is a stupid statement, but I like the way I described it. Well, especially since they, they knocked it off so fast, they, you know, they probably didn't have a chance to go back and tinker or it's like, Hey, what would it sound like? We added some more this here, this here. What if we, you know, started rearranging and put in, you know, this kind of thing. It's like, okay, it's done. Let's take it away from us. <laughs> right. Um, Before we mess with it. <laughs> my dad found a, a whole YouTube sort of playlist of the official Rush music videos that they released. Oh, do you own, Jim, do you own, uh, cr- uh, what is it called? Rush Cron... Chronicles? Chronicles, yes. Chronicles. Which yep. I believe yeah, is they- all music videos. 
Yeah, I think they collect, yeah, they collect a lot of their um, Atlantic, pretty much their Atlantic stuff. Right. I wish they would release something else like that because for a while, I think I believe that ended with Time Stand Still was mm-hmm. like the last yeah, video fire, or, yeah. or something on Hold Your Fire. Uh, they ended with the worst music video of all time, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> but I think, much like live recordings of this era, from Presto through Test for Echo is such a undocumented time Aside from bootlegs, obviously. Like, anytime I say this, people email me, they're like, I have bootlegs. I understand there's bootlegs, but they weren't releasing much. You know, all these videos exist. There's videos for Driven and uh, Show Don't Tell, Half the World. Superconductor, and yeah. And obviously, you can see them on YouTube, but it's just nice to have official releases. And you especially sound like someone who likes to collect that kind of thing. Yeah, it would be nice. I mean, it was one of the, you know, great video frustrations was that... um, the uh, camera eye, which is basically the live, um, you know, exit stage left stuff, it's like an hour long. <laughs> it's like, hey, let's let's shoot their whole set probably, but really only put out like an hour of it. And then like run credits over like a song. Yeah. And it was just like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> such a weird, I, I, I definitely. We can only afford like a, an hour long video cassette. We can't get like the hour and a half video cassette. That would drive our unit cost up. Right. I especially, uh, being 24 years old, take that for granted because I don't remember a time. I guess I remember a time when you couldn't fit, and you know the amount of music you wanted to fit on something. But I bet a true millennial, you know, a sophomore in high school right now, would not know what it's like to not be able to fit every piece of music that they own on one device, let let alone a CD. You know. Um. All right, let's move on to the weapon because. This is something I caught a lot of heat for a long time ago when the podcast was still pretty new mm-hmm. um, earlier last year. I had I, I must have said something really evil about the weapon. I guess evil's a good word for something in the Fear Trilogy. But um, I've come around a bit, mostly because my listeners pointed out what I'm missing in it. Um, I still think it's a pretty low-key song, even though it's, it is high energy at times. And it has a very different vibe going on that is probably very appropriate for the Fear Trilogy. Um, maybe their most different song uh, than yeah, anything else. Rhythmically, I mean, it's in, I believe it's in four, because Neil is playing just like quarter notes, but he's playing all these weird, skittery sort of beats over it. Yes. And yeah. there's this, there's the sequencer stuff uh, going on, and you know you'll get more of that sort of sequencer stuff um, certainly on uh, Grace and and so forth uh, onward after that, and it's just kind of kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, and weird is not bad. You know, uh, right. this is all we can all agree. This is a weird band. Yet here we are on a Sunday night. <laughs> you know, talking right. about. It, 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 and it's weird in the sense that it, you know, I don't know if there was anything they were listening to that influenced them to do this at all, because, you know, it's not reggae, it's not, you know, just sort of weird. There's that, though the drumming is, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly not a drummer, but it's just arrhythmic in a way, at some point, it seems. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening over a very yeah. basic 4-4, like you mentioned. Right. Um there is a listener who gave me the most crap. Like this guy sent me pages and pages of worth of emails. Uh, uh, he said the weapon is hands down his favorite rush tune ever, mm-hmm. which I thought 
no one would ever say. <laughs> like, I'm just surprised that that's the case. Uh, and he defended it. He defended it well. I'm sure he's probably listening mm-hmm. to this album's episode. Um, yeah. I- yeah, it's not a song I, I crap on anymore. I, I used okay. to laugh at it, you know, but now I do see its uh, potential, not its potential, but I see the beauty in it, even though it's a different sort of beauty. And also, Grace Under Pressure Live helped that. Like, to hear yeah. a few live versions of it are like, oh, this is this does have a different well, sort of life. And they lighten it up with the Count Floyd intro. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's certainly very of the time. If you uh, don't put on your 3D glasses, you'll only be seeing this in one half D. Yep. And what's what's interesting, this is, in a sense, like, like say, Witch Hunt on Moving Pictures, this is sort of the production cut. Uh, on the album, this is where they're throwing the special effects sound. They got like a explosion sound. You know, there's all sorts of they're throwing the kitchen sink at this. Oh, that's a good point. So maybe unlike the other tracks in the record, or more so mm. than any other track, they maybe this one was not. They knew we're not going to build this as a live song. Mm. We're gonna we're gonna well, build. You know, we're gonna stack it with some sounds. Right, and, and that's certainly one thing that surprised me that when they toured, they played everything but losing it on this tour. They they played the weapon and they played countdown, digital man, chemistry, analog kid, and subdivision. Wow, yeah, and I, they, I the, hadn't the, realized. I totally buy that, but I hadn't realized that. Uh, I had to look at the set list because I remember it being played because there was this the the lighting rig did this weird sort of like spinning thing. But I remember when I saw them, and I kind of figured, okay, you're not gonna they're probably not gonna play losing it live because you've got a you know violin part sure there. Um, but yeah, and this is this was the song that like had some explosions in it, you know, the, the you know the obligatory pyro in a song. Yeah, I think what I'm most I'm just sitting on that what you said a couple of minutes ago. I'm um, what I'm most surprised at is that they played Countdown, which really mm-hmm. got no love since that tour. Uh, the thing about Countdown is rhythmically it's weird i remember debating with my dad about what where the downbeat was in the very beginning with that synth part uh Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to grasp at first or still hard to grasp for me i remember my buddy at school actually you guys know him his name is john bince and he was on the hemispheres episode Mm -hmm. we were in music school and we're you know like just messing around in the practice room with the piano and he goes hey what's this and he starts playing the keyboard solo for countdown Mm -hmm. And I watched him play. Like he was not known as a piano player. <laughs> Most of us who weren't mm-hmm. piano majors were couldn't play piano very well. And I'm watching him just play this thing with ease, and it's all white keys. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. And I imagined, yeah. like, if you know anything about piano, like, if you play something for that length of time and it's all white keys, it's sort of like, uh, okay, <laughs> you know, right. this isn't the greatest composition, probably, but right. um. The blank keys are just getting in the way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but you could just see Getty. Let's just use the big ones. You could see him like, and Getty's self-proclaimed not the greatest keyboard player anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you could see him just like, oh, well, this works, and I guess if these all sound good, I'll just stay here. Um, right. Where are we going? Hold on. <laughs> Countdown is a song that, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's like a, if we want to call it a deep cut or a vault mm-hmm. tune, it's a deep yeah. cut that the casual fan often knows about. Like sometimes I run into oh. people and they're, I found out they're Rush fans and I, you know, how do I ask this person? No, really, how big of a Rush fan are you? How do I ask them that? And and however I ask it, they usually say, oh, Countdown? Like Countdown is such a good song. And that's so much better than I love Tom Sawyer. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard it often where people are like, they just pull out this one deep cut, uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's countdown. It's a good tune. And there's and there's a lot of you know samples in there. What we would call samples now, it's all the you know the the NASA voices and and stuff like that, and trying to you know coordinate. I believe I, if I can remember that far back, you know, there was video on the screen on the the projection screen behind them. We'll film back then, and um, you know, you, they've got to probably time this all to a sequencer and a click track and stuff just to make it all work. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't imagine that was a fun job. No, I can't imagine. That's why probably Countdown was never played again. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, even though I think it'd be cool with their new sound. Um, with their new sort of, you know, the upgraded technology and the sound they have live yeah. now. Uh, so we got one song. We got one song left from this record, and uh, I wanted to do something something special for this episode. Uh, so that's why we left losing it for last. Uh, this is somebody you're gonna love to hear from. Please welcome Ben Mink to the show. How's it going, Ben? No problem, man. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, do you, Jim? Do you know Ben? Uh, no, we have not yet had the pleasure. I'm just nice playing. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to cut me in later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just messing around. I didn't tell Jim I was going to do that, and I could feel the awkwardness through the phone, which <laughs> was enjoyable for me. But <laughs> hey, the people you've had on before, I wouldn't put it past. I know. I appreciate you completely <laughs> believing that that was a thing. Thank I mean, you cool. so much. All right, I shot him in the video. <laughs> I've, I've reached out to Ben a lot, like probably like every couple of months. I'm like, I should ask Ben Mink. But then I realized I've emailed him before after I send that email. So he's got like four emails in his inbox for me right now. Just gently uh, being like, hey, man, like we would love to hear from you. Um, it's this Jay guy again. He keeps emailing. Yeah, who is this song. jerk? <laughs> you know what it is? Is I Most of the time when I email him, I'm completely uninterested in losing it. And I just want to talk about my favorite headache. And no, may- sure. maybe yeah. he has no interest in talking about that record. I don't know. You know, yeah. realistically, it could be that since it was during Neil's tragedy... He doesn't want to take the risk of coming on a Rush podcast. He's not even in Rush. And yeah. and having he doesn't know who I am. Maybe I'm some idiot who's like, hey, tell me about, you know, what it was tell like for Neil. With the guy, it was really cool. <laughs> yeah, what's it like when your whole family passes away? You know, the, we've all seen those interviews. Um, right. Or, or it's like the Chris Farley bit with, you know, Paul McCartney. So you were in the Beatles. What was that like? <laughs> <laughs> you bet that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> what's it like to be around Getty and Alex? Yeah. Uh, that, that's a good point. So no, I don't have Ben, and I apologize for making such a bad joke. But um, <laughs> let's talk about losing it. Uh, mm-hmm. lo- I for me, I remember where I was when I remembered hearing uh, the line about the moonlight on the floor. What's what's the? I got it right here. What's the line? Uh, I don't remember. And she limps across the floor. Maybe it was something. It was some line in in a, in my head. I didn't know every Rush song yet because I was still a okay. teenager, and I was driving in Bennington, Vermont, and I was like, "What is that song?" Like I know I've heard it before. I'd heard it like once or twice, but I couldn't pinpoint what song it was. And the only option I had back then was <laughs> to just listen to the entire catalog until I found it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I found it at losing. I'm like, oh, it's that track I skipped every time I listened to Signals. You know, mm-hmm. it's no secret now that I was into the more, you know, high energy Rush songs, and mm-hmm. the beginning half of losing it is far from high energy. Mm-hmm. If yeah. I were more mature, I would have realized, oh, but it's in five. It's in five eight. It's in a really cool. Uh, 
it's in a really cool time signature, I would have found that cool. But, you know, I was just a little bit mm. too narrow-minded back then. What What's your well, experience it, with losing it? I mean, it's certainly, it's, you come out of New World Man, you're like, yeah, yeah. And then it's like, oh, wait, 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 what's going on here? It's about, you know, diminished capacity and people coming to terms with, you know, not being able to, you know, tap that creative spirit and feeling and, um, you know, what do, what, what do you do? How do you come to terms with it? Yeah. And then even, you know, it ends with them talking about, um, hey, you know, it, these people are doing it. Um, most of us just dream about what we want to do. And, you know, these people are doing it, and then they have to sort of deal with um, Ted or still to die, watch it die than never to have known it. Yeah, very, you know, and, and, very and, and, powerful. And at, point, at some point, everything, you know, there's certain things that, you know, as time goes on, you know, you can't run as fast or you can't, you know, play football as fast or you make sounds when, you know, you get up out of a chair or you make sounds while you're sitting down. You're like, oh, you know, <laughs> the body starts to go a little bit. You have to sort of figure out how to deal with that. Jay doesn't know anything about that yet. <laughs> <laughs> it'll come there's a certain time where i can't i can't remember the order where you make noises when you sit down and then when you make noises when you when you stand up it i can't remember which one comes first where you're like Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> um i thought it was really neat that like not to bring this this up like this thing that i wish no one would ever talk about again uh, when Neil recently came out and allegedly announced his retirement that I completely debunked in an older episode. Uh, but it was neat for him to sort of reference an older track like this when he, when he said he quoted losing it and yep. pretty much said, you got to hang it up when you don't have it anymore. Um, yep. you know, we all, we all kind of agree that that was an overreaction though. I hope that sure. whole article, but, um, it, it's cool for me whenever the band acknowledges something from their past. Maybe it's because I'm younger and didn't like I didn't experience Rush when this was a fresh record. So for mm-hmm. for Neil to simply acknowledge the song losing it was mm-hmm. was in my brain them going, yeah, we know we made that song and mm-hmm. we know it's really good. It's the same way when I think on Time Machine, the Time Machine tour, when we saw them in Saratoga, New York. Uh, Getty said the word rush into the mic and that was a weird moment like I said to dad I'm like I've never heard him say the name of the band ever and I didn't I hadn't seen every interview interview at that point I'm sure he had said it in the past but it was just cool for me to sort of acknowledge them for them to acknowledge their own band name just for whatever reason was cool Uh, it's the same way if Alex Lyson Lifeson came out with a interview video tomorrow and was like you know what Uh, war paint I think was really cool. When I listen to War Paint, I think it's a really good song. That would be a really cool moment for me because that's a song yeah. I've never heard them acknowledge. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and, you know, they've mentioned, I think Neil and Giddy have certainly mentioned it in interviews when talking about, you know, putting together R30 or certainly R40. And, you know, when they look at their at their old catalog, you have certain memories of things you, this, the time around, uh, when they put a song together or an album together. And um, they'll talk about, I think they talk about this more in retrospect about Grace Under Pressure, which is pretty, it's a dark album, and it's sort of a dark time for them. Um, but you, you look back, and even though everybody might love the song, you're like, you, the guys in the band might have been going through some crap at that time in their lives, and it's like, they just want to put that behind them. and you know, Or they, they think it's, Certain songs are like, I think Neil had once said, Lakeside Park, to him, 
uh, is kind of like you know one of those drawings of your kids you put up on the on the fridge when they're a kid, and then when you you're adult, you look back at that and you're like, oh, that's not really not a great picture. <laughs> <laughs> I there's got to be something like that happening for the song "Fly By Night" because mm-hmm. that song oh. hasn't seen the light of day in 40 years. And I, it's here, that was my one song. I had my fingers crossed for well, at least they'll at least maybe tease "Fly By Night," you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. On, um, and the, I mean, the only real tease they did on our 40 was. That last riff, I believe, that they play at the, um, the after Road. they, yeah, they play Garden Road. I, mean, I think a lot of people, I would say, ninety-five percent of the people in the crowd were like, they don't know that because they don't know that Garden Road was a song that never made the, you know, first album. So. I, I knew uh, me personally, I knew the name, but I didn't know how it sounded. And I looked at correspondent Chad <laughs> after I, I sat there just listening intently, and I turned to him and went, "What the hell was that?" <laughs> I have no yeah, idea what song yeah, that was. Because yeah. <laughs> it just sounds like a, like a riff. Well, I just remember people sort of go nuts when on an earlier tour, oh, maybe it was around R30, where they teased the riff for singing its book one. Oh, totally. That, that bass riff. And you're like, heads and are like, whoa. That's the ultimate tease because the pause is built into the song. And when you don't get it, you're like, oh, that would have been cool to hear that actual tune. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, did you hear the... Um, Sound Opinions uh, interview this week. I uh, didn't. Was it a video or I? I, I no, saw that a, there was a, one. Yeah, it's a, a show. It's actually the two newspaper uh, music critics in Chicago. They have a podcast called Sound Opinions, and they recently interviewed Getty and Alex. So it must have been within the last couple of weeks, and they talked about sort of the status of the band and what's going on. And Getty basically says to bring things back around to losing it. Getty's like. Neil sort of realizes he can't go out and tour, you know, for play, you know, 30, 40 shows, three hours every other night because of just the wear and tear and the pain on his body. And so that, you know, it, it basically, you know, so we certainly can't tour like that, but it doesn't preclude us from doing other stuff like, you know, potentially making a record or trying to figure out how to, you know, share some music. So it's, it's. Right. And like, I, Jim, I think you and people like you and I, knew that you know and like that's more of like an official statement don't you think for like the general public who write misleading articles like the one we had a few months ago right right like i don't think he would i'm waiting for an update on his website that i assume he's sort of half written where it's like look here's what i said and here's the context i never said anything about this and i'm never going to walk away from this but i can't you know go out and play three hours every other night i mean who can you know yeah 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 and in re- with regards to them writing more stuff, more material, mm-hmm. this is the same grace period that has happened since I became a Rush fan in oh, yeah. 05 or whatever, okay? Um, they 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 release something, and then we get the thing we're in right now, which is, eh, we don't know, we're going to take a break, and like maybe yep. down the road, which it always <laughs> means yes, or has Sorry. meant yes. There's obviously got to be an end sometime, but... For, for ages, it's been like, oh, what are you guys going to do after the tours? Or, uh, we're not going to do anything for like six months. Yeah. You know, <laughs> then after the first of the year, we're going to start, you know, seeing what's going on. And then maybe we'll. Alex always seems to be the one in interviews who's who would be very optimistic and just sort of say, oh, yeah, no, we're going to get to the other May and start working on a new record and try to have it out in the fall. <laughs> right. We even had a reason. But yeah, sometimes it's they... been six months off where they're not even going to do anything. Other times it's been like they've said, we're just going to take a year off. <laughs> We even had a recent tour that didn't even correspond to an album with Time Machine. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. Certainly, that's certainly weird because it seemed like they were sort of opposed to touring without something to, you know, behind a new record or, or something. 
Well, it definitely showed though that they had plans in the works. You know, they even oh, yeah. had a couple of songs. Oh yeah, we had we had the two Clockwork tunes, so that was a nice. And in in our live show, I think he was like, "They're going to be on our next album, Clockwork Angels," which was like a nice breath of or what do you say, breath of a uh, breath of fresh air. Um, yeah, and that and that they had. If you look at the old tour date stuff, they had toured a little bit, like right before moving picture, right before they recorded moving pictures, and there are a couple of these little pre uh, warm up tours, right? Like Power Windows yeah, had a warm up tour, tour like where they go and they play some shows, and then they go into the studio. They like, oh yeah, cool. and that's. A, I mean, I'm sure Jim, you got to experience this. I'm not sure like what your history is seeing the band live, but mm-hmm. uh, I recently went through. I was on the train one day. I was bored as hell, and I went through the, um, the all the set lists. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. And uh, on those warm up tours, you get to see new material. It's sort of like yep. when we got to hear Caravan and brought it to believe. Uh, I missed like I missed that. I was not mm-hmm. around to see that sort of thing for any band. You know, everyone I listened to is like older. So I wish I could see a band play live and then go, this will be on our next record. Like you've never heard this. Um, actually, you know, I did, I could do it with periphery. I saw periphery's latest set list that I saw and I, their album wasn't out yet. And now that I've digested that album, I can go back and go, Oh cool. They played that track. (laughs) You know, that's like their biggest track ever now. And we got to hear it. No one knew what it was. You know, those stories float around for moving pictures and permanent waves, those big hits. You know, they're playing free will. Somebody sent me a video of Tom Sawyer before it was released on the record, and he said, this is a new one. It's Tom Sawyer, and yep. no, nobody cheered. <laughs> you know, like, All right. it's weird hearing hearing that intro with nobody yelling. Um, it was also a very different-sounding track. Right. That, that's a, it's, there was a moving pictures warm-up tour in, like, September of 1980, and the, the keyboard solo sound is very like Kraftwerkish compared to you know the the sound that he got on the the keyboard solo oh, you think so? on Tom Sawyer for example huh yeah I'm surprised at how different that recording was and um, then there was a the signals warm-up tour was I think for a couple weeks in April of 82 where they I I have no idea what motivated them to go out and play you know a dozen dates in like Arkansas and Louisiana <laughs> and Florida you know yeah yeah um, you know what I've been thinking about is how the music industry is changing and it, and it's moving towards single songs releases like mm-hmm. like there are all these songs that you know for example Taylor Swift's album 1989 has been out for what do we decide it was like two years or something it's been out mm-hmm. forever but she's still releasing these singles I'm like these aren't off of 1989 are they you know I turn on top 40 radio I hear new Taylor Swift songs uh, that seems to be what pop artists are doing now is People aren't buying albums, at least people listening to mm-hmm. Top 40. They're not buying albums. They're buying the hits they hear because it's easier than ever to do so. You couldn't do that with records or CDs. So, well, Rush is, Rush is an example of one of those bands, certainly in the 70s and 80s, where I think Alex has mentioned this in interviews. You would get a couple albums sort of a practice. You'd put out your first album, you'd tour, you'd get a supporting thing and stuff, and the record company was interested in developing you, and by the time your third or fourth album came out, you know, they, you had gotten your chops, you know, you, you knew what worked. And, you know, then that's kind of when they expect the results, which is, you know, the Cressus Jail and the 2112 sort of thing. Um, but nowadays, you know, oh, it's so-and-so's first album in seven years. And back, you know, in the 80s, there would be five albums put out over seven years, not one album. You know? Yeah, you know what that reminds me of? And it's a really, I think it's a really good analogy, is 
coaching in pro sports and in college sports. Like, look at college football. It used to mm. be you got, as a head coach, they hire you, you get at least four years to to see what you can do. You got four sure. years to build, to recruit, build your program, mm-hmm. you know, coach well, build your coaching staff, and win games. In four years, you better have a successful program. Well, now it's turning, this. the culture is win now. So yep. these, these coaches get a season, and in college mm-hmm. football, that's like 12 games. You get 12 games to, to win, and if you don't, we kick you out and find somebody else who will win in that amount of time. That's sort of what it reminds me of. Now, as an artist, you come in, it's like, you better give us hits now. We're not going to let you release four records and have them all flop until you get a good one. Oh, right. Or I had read a book called, um, So You Think You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, and it's uh, the guy who was drummer, the drummer in Semisonic in the 90s, and it's a good book. It's sort of, you know, hey, I got into a band, and all of a sudden we had a hit single, and we were playing festivals and this and that, and, you know, then the guy who, our A&R guy at the label left, and so on and so on, and, you know, it's the problems of, shooting a music video that's going to come right out of their advance and their royalties. So they've got to sell like 300,000 records even before they see a dollar yeah. out of the whole thing. And yeah, he, he talks about like they had wardrobe and he had like a $600 belt on. He's the drummer. Nobody's going to see that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a $600 belt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think with Russia's scenario right now, and again, this is obviously not anything having to do with signals, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I say it's okay. I'm sure my Rushcast bosses will approve. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think that sort of suits where Rush is at. Like, okay, yeah. they don't want to have huge tours. De- obviously, they've all all three of them have said that. That's fine. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe they don't even want to do small tours. Whatever. Uh, we're all kind of hoping for an album. But don't you think with Neil raising a family and them being separated geographically that just writing single like a single a year is not too much to ask or, or sort of very convenient for them? They've got the following. They know they'll sell that single. Uh, you know, like that- spend three or just three to six months writing one track and record it and release it. So maybe in the grand scheme of things, in 20 years, when we look back at Rush's career, yeah, they released 20, 21 studio albums and then released singles because they got too old. Yeah. I mean, I think they had spoken a little bit about this around the Time Machine tour where they were working on a new album. They wanted to get a couple songs out there to promote them, but you know, they know that the album is sort of a kind of a thing of the past in a lot of ways, and maybe it makes sense to do stuff like feedback and do like four or five things and then release that. Or maybe they start releasing a couple of songs at a time and then they collect it all as an album later on. Yeah, and you're right about Time Machine because Caravan and Brought Out to Believe were released as a sort of, like an EP, Dad, an EP yeah. would have more than two songs, right? Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. So these, we're talking about like singles, like records had an A and a B side, two, two tracks. Yeah. Uh, that was essentially what the Caravan single was. It had its own artwork. You know, and like you could find it's a separate thing on iTunes. They were different versions because they were re-recorded for the record. Uh, That I think you're right. That was like a taste of them going, "Oh, like this is a thing we can do and actually be successful at." Yeah, yeah. I I suppose it depends on what the record deal is like and stuff. But it's also you can get a couple things out there, um, work together probably quickly, and then not have to worry about okay, we need six more songs before we can release this. Right. I. I, I mean, obviously, this is something we stay away from all the time, Neil's personal life, but I wonder sure. if he has a, a kit at home. Like, 
is is drumming a thing he does solely for work where he, he goes to his rehearsal space or does he have a little kid at home that he plays once a day or just jams on right. um because if I, that were I'd the, like to think he's got like a little four piece in the office that you know you can drag out but you would I hope so got, right if he really wants to bang on something there's there's, you know, probably a rehearsal space or he goes to see the drum workshop people or sure. whoever. Because yeah. if, if, what? He's Neil Peart. He's got this whole freaking room with this gigantic drum set in it that he just sits down and plays whenever he wants. He's got a three-car garage that's <laughs> yeah. just drum sets. I'm sure it's not a garage. But. There was like a drop cloth over it. And it yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if he had a kit, like, Getty and Alex could essentially, Alex could essentially write the entire song bass drums vocals and send it to him i know alex plays enough drums to like lay down a basic pattern uh for what they're looking for and they send it to him be like whenever you on your own timetable you know Mm -hmm. work it out and record a drum part to this yeah i think it's been mentioned and it's certainly in previous albums uh both getty and alex have like studios in their basements and we've seen pictures of getty's like joint bass collection stuff but uh, I think Neil mentioned once that Alex is pretty good at coming up with like really weird drum parts on like drum machines. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? As an artist, that's like a, a really cool thing to have. Like when somebody, mm-hmm. uh, when a jazz piano player writes a bass part, it's always the best because it's not the bass part I would write. I, you yeah. know, you write based on what's what feels good on your instrument and what you're used to. So when a sax player writes a bass line, it's always super funky to play, but sounds way different than you would ever anything else you would play just by yourself sure um last week uh jim our guest ron reed talked about how the cover the album art for moving pictures had sort of a it almost frames itself with this black border Mm -hmm. um and the first thing i thought of was how the next album signals does the same thing and then dead you mentioned that it was all you know moving pictures has three this three that and all these different double meanings and in itself if it's got a border around it and you pick it up and carry it it becomes a moving it be- picture <laughs> it itself. becomes a moving picture because it's framed if you carry the album around um i've always been kind of curious as to why they had all this uh sort of negative space around the actual photo for their album like i'm looking at the cd cover right now mm-hmm. Wasn't there more negative space on the vinyl than this? It was there's just larger probably, than There's probably two and a half, three inches around the thing. I mean, it, it, yeah. something smaller there certainly draws the eye in. You, you know, you're framed it. You've got the, the empty space around it, so then you really focus on, you know, the dog. Uh, yeah, you said it. You frame it. You, that's whereas, exactly right. Whereas, you know, permanent waves is just side to side, you know, edge to edge, and grace under pressure is edge to edge, and... Uh, part windows, you know, it's got maybe a, like a little tiny border around it, but yeah, the the smaller thing I think actually draws the eye in to like you want to study it now because it's on a neutral background. Yeah, I mean, we don't really see this again until counterparts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Or maybe, oh, maybe no, no, not presto. Counterparts, it's not necessarily a border, but it is this sort of right. minimalistic kind of thing happening. Yep. Can I ask a uh, question that I feel embarrassed to ask? You don't have to ask permission to say anything. <laughs> well, it's just a matter of, you know, I am a Rush fan, but, you know, I never got the meaning of this album cover. Is there a meaning I'm totally missing? Or is it sure. that I understand why the dog is sniffing the fire hydrant. Don't get me wrong there. Right. The, the dog is, you know, uh, you know, picking up chemical signals, certainly. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, I'm going to leave a few, the, too, I think. I w- 
I was reading through the uh, album, the uh, Art of Rush uh, book recently, and they had talked about one of the concepts they were originally doing was something that they were going to that they were picking up sort of on permanent ways, which has their their heartbeats. They were going to they thought they might originally okay strap on some you know electrodes under their heads and just sort of record the brain activity while they were playing, and then just have you know three stripes across the page with this sort of you know wavelength across it and their eyes sort of coming through the. Uh, Thing, and then they realized the police did that on synchronicity, and so it's like, okay, let's throw that concept out. But, you know, it gets back to the certainly the back cover is, um, you know, that, that's a subdivision, and you've got the pins for the um, fire hydrants, and you've got the uh, yellow line between them symbolizing, you know, what the dog's sniffing. And uh, then they, you know, there's the in-jokes, um, B.J. Pratt and Associates and Lurkwood Mall and Old Dirk Road and, mm-hmm. you know, Line Drive, because they were really big into baseball. That's when they started getting into, Gideon mentioned how they got, he had especially gotten into baseball back then, because they're on tour, and then, you know, before the sound check, there's nothing going on, but, you know, W.O.R. or uh, W.G.N. was, you know, had a baseball game on in the afternoon, or if he was in town, he would just go see a baseball game. Yeah, and we talked off the air about how all the guys in the credits of the album have a are assigned a baseball position. Getting... Yeah, they, I think they had like they had put together like a softball team, and they would play. I don't I don't know who they would play, but uh, oh yeah, I don't know if those were their actual positions or not. But yeah, they would. Right. Uh, and then, well, even in the artwork on the inside, um, the original art has you know three of them, and they're very pixelated, you know, imagery. Getty with those giant Getty's glasses, yeah, and big. and whatnot. But yeah, you know, back then, hey, that's computer graphics, and that's like, whoa. <laughs> they are digital men. I'll take so. your word for it. It looks like shit to me. But <laughs> like back when, when we had those Apple II Pluses, come on, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I had a Commodore VIC-20. I'm, I was state-of-the-art. I mean, these all sound like space shuttles to me, but <laughs> they sound super fancy. Um, yeah, all around a good record and uh, a good oh, yeah. sounding record, too. I, I think... Uh, last week we talked about how Moving Pictures had a very unique sound, unlike any other record they did. And mm-hmm. I was, me personally, I was talking about the tone of the instruments, uh, not necessarily the recording quality. Uh, right. I do think, as you would imagine, with a newer album, um, a more technologically advanced recording, that I think sonically signals sounds better. Um, There's some, uh, well, you as a bass player, I haven't been able to dig up something to find out what Getty's playing each track, but it's mostly, I assume, the Rick is on, on this stuff. And there's some really good tone that he's getting. Uh, I, I'm, I'm almost positive the Rick is present on Signals, but I think this mm. was a bit more jazz bass. Okay. Right? Dad would know as well, I think. Um, he started playing that on Moving Pictures. Yeah, he, yep. right. and... Uh, uh, moving Pictures. Yeah, 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 Moving Pictures. And um, I'm almost positive Signals is the, the jazz bass. Or I'm okay. sorry, sub, subdivisions is the jazz bass is what I meant to say. Because okay. um, I, I know he's got the Rick in the video, but you know, I, I I wasn't able to find like a track by track. You know, on this thing I played this and this. Like Alex starts out playing the modified Stratocasters he has. Yeah, um, I was actually just gonna say like he, Alex isn't known as a Strat player. Uh, right, like he got he got the Strats he used to play Gibsons, and for some reason he was getting used to the Strat because you could put a Floyd Rose on it, mm-hmm. and he'd put a like a Gibson humbucker on the bridge, and then he I think he threw the neck out and put a different neck on it or exactly. something for a different feel. But um, yeah, so yeah, he was sort of changing changing up stuff. Well, I know later on we'll we'll get into this in the next few episodes. 
Uh, Alex used these strats with single coil pickups even because they kind of slice through the synthesizer sound more. So like the yeah. humbuckers give you a fatter, wider sound, which was the sonic space that the synthesizers were taking up. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hear it on, you know, a show of hands with Hold Your mm-hmm. Fire, especially. Uh, really one of my favorite guitar sounds. Yep. I can't wait till we get to those records and I can just completely lay it on thick of on how great those two <laughs> those two albums are for mm-hmm. me. Um, but no, uh, Jim, really, really cool having you on and, and really fun. Nice job. No problem. Happy to be on. I mean, this is, this is a, a great album. I, it's one of the few, uh, I don't often get back to this album and sit down and listen to the whole thing. Like I do a uh, moving pictures or a, uh, a permanent waves, but, um, it, yeah, it's certainly nice to revisit this. And, uh, it, I couldn't remember the song order briefly. I'm like, wait, is chemistry you know, where is losing it? Is yeah. that, you know, I know it's on side two, but is it track two or three on side two? Because for some reason, I always thought it was after the weapon. And I couldn't, like, you know, I had to pull the thing out and go, oh, okay. Uh, See, I'm the opposite of what you just said. I'll listen, once in a while, I'll be like, I'm totally, this is a signals day. I'm in the mood for signals. I'll listen to it up and down. Uh, but I almost mm-hmm. never have that for permanent waves or moving pictures. I, I more mm-hmm. so have it like, you know, I really want to listen to Natural Science right now, and I'll just kind of pick and choose the sure. tracks off of those records, but I never listen up and down for whatever reason. Um, cool. All well, right, good man. Good to talk to you. Good to, good to talk to your dad. Good to talk to Ben Mink, even if it was only briefly. Yeah, it's too bad you weren't able to hear him. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. What? No, I was just going to say, uh, it was a great, great episode, Jim. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing with Dad Mantis, too. Uh, last minute having him on. That was nice of you. Cool. Uh, you're cool with Dad Mantis, right? Being called Dad Mantis. Oh, yeah. oh sure. <laughs> we'll call it Jim Jim Mantis for the for the show notes. <laughs> Jay, stage name. Yeah. Jay Mantis sits down with Jim Mantis and Dad Mantis for this episode on Signals. Welcome to Rushcast, the Mantis Show. The, man, the Mantis Show. Attention all mantises with the Rushcast. Oh, podcast. that's what you, Jim emailed me his number right before right. we aired. He was like, attention all, what, what was it? Attention all mantises of the Rushcast Federation or something. It was a nice little nod. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to Dad Mantis. And uh, we will see you guys soon for something called Grace Under Pressure. See you later. Cool.